if you have a Bible, uh, either turn it on or open it up to the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in this uh, section of Scripture for a while right now, but to me this is one of the, the greatest teachings of Jesus and worthy of our time and attention. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you. And if you're just here visiting, kind of checking out Christianity, uh, we're glad that you're here. There's a bookshelf out in the foyer that has Bibles and other Christian resources. Please check that out and pick up anything that is of interest to you. We're just really glad you're here, and we want that to be our gift to you. So let me ask you a question. Who do you look to for guidance in living life? Whose advice do you actually follow? Not whose advice do you listen to, but whose advice do you actually follow? Who do you see as an authority for how you should live life well? The question is, who, in essence, are you following? Because we like to feel independent, but I think all of us are following someone. It may have been a parent, it may have been a boss, it may have been someone above us somewhere, but we tend to pick up things and live life kind of towards someone who we think is, is living well. But a lot of us like to think, you know, I, I'm just my own person, I'm just going to make this decision for myself. I'm going to live life on my own and figure out what's right and wrong on my own. But it's pretty confusing out there, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just going to Google life, right? All right, um, I, I Googled, are bananas good for you? All right, a fairly simple question. Guess how many hits, how many results Google came up with for just that simple question, are bananas good for you? Any guesses? 400,000? 600,000? 125 million results for are bananas good for you, okay? For the rest of my life, I can be reading stuff on bananas, right? So are they good? Are they not good? One article will say they're good. Another article will say they're not good. So it's kind of hard to figure out which they are. And that's just one simple question that you wouldn't think would require 125 million results to explain the answer to. We live in a culture where we have information overload. There's more information out there now than there ever has been in the history of the world. And folks that study this say that basically from the time of Christ to about year 1500, the volume of human knowledge doubled. That's 1500 years. After that, it doubled in about 250 years. And by 1945, those that study this saying it's doubling at about every 25 years. Guess what the current estimate is in terms of how long it takes for human information now to double? Less than a year? Any other? This is a guy writing in a LinkedIn article talking about Students, there was a stunned silence when I told a group of young students that the jobs of tomorrow, for which they were preparing themselves today, haven't yet been invented. I received a similar response when I said that things are, that are being taught today in our schools and colleges would be redundant by the time the students graduate. Two things are happening at the same time. The velocity of technology is increasing exponentially, and it will never again be as slow as it is today. 
And secondly, the volume of knowledge being generated today boggles the mind. The volume of knowledge is doubling every 12 hours. The doubling rate used to be 25 years in 1945. Speed with which our technology is progressing is the driver which, are, which is upending our careers, transforming our lives, and disrupting our economies, and I say also impacting our spiritual lives as well. And I share that because as we go through life, there is no possible way as a human being I can process all the data that I am receiving, right? It's just impossible. And so we regularly as human beings just have learned, okay, there's just got to be a data dump. I'm just going to dump this stuff. And we will watch TV or we'll look at our news feed and we'll hear some tragic story about something maybe happening in Ukraine. And it's, it, oh, wow, this is amazingly bad. And then the next story is going to be about some cute puppy that got rescued out of a sewer somewhere. And we're just like, okay, how do I process this? I can't. And so much of what we're presented today, we can't do anything about. It's just information, and, and it may move us, but there's just nothing we really can do with it. So I think in one sense, in a protection measure, we just learn to kind of just dump that off to the side. And that's okay when the information is about bananas. I'm still going to eat a banana in the morning. That's okay. I'm not worried about it that much. But I think when it comes to spiritual matters, it's really, really significant and important that we pay attention to that. But I think in our day and age, we're trained to just bring in a lot of information and just kind of dump it on the other side because there's just so much, I, I don't know what to do with it. And I think that's even true in the Christian world. There's so much out there. And we can listen to podcast after podcast and hear all this kind of stuff. And if we're not careful, it's just like, yeah, I heard that information, but I, I just don't have time to, I'm just going to go on to that next thing. And as Tim Mackey of the Bible Project says, he thinks that the Bible is meditation literature. It's not stuff that, okay, I've got it, I'm moving on to the next topic. But this is what I think it's saying here. Let me chew on this for a little bit. How does this relate to my life? How is this lived out as I go through life? But that's really, really challenging for us. And Jesus has just given this amazing sermon, and at the end of this sermon, he doesn't do what most preachers do. You know, it's an encouraging story, or a nice little... Basically, at the end of this, he just hits us with four warnings. Bam, 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 bam. He talked about, okay, there's a false way, and there's a true way to go. There's false prophets who are bad trees, and there's good trees. And then in this section, he's looking at there are false followers of Christ, and also there are false hearers of the words of Christ. And Jesus gives some really significant warnings in this section. He gets through all this teaching in the sermon, this brilliant sermon that's put together in the begin, beginning and saying, who are those that make it into the kingdom? And that's the Beatitudes, those that are poor in the spirit, those that are mourning over their sin, those that are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The kingdom is available to them. And that's great. All of us are welcome when we come through Christ. But then the question is, what are we to be? Well, he says we're to be salt and light. That's what we're to be in this world. And then he says basically the whole rest of the sermon, this is how you are salt and light. And then he gets to the end of the sermon. 
And he says, okay, these are some significant warnings that I want to bring before you. And these warnings, they have eternal consequences. So let's read the last part of this sermon, and then we'll talk a little bit about it, starting in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. This is a reading of the word of God. Thanks be to God. So Jesus ends this sermon with some pretty strong words. Those that don't hear and apply and do what I've said, their house is like a house that's built on sand and it will crash to the floor. And then Jesus drops the mic and he walks off. It's like, you're just left with this, wow, that's kind of a punch in the gut, spiritually. And so there's two final warnings here. And the first is a warning not to be a false follower. Look at verse 21. And these people sound orthodox, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. These are people that think they have a relationship with God. They're saying, Lord, Lord, and that doesn't mean kind of the full-orbed deity of Christ that we think of it yet. Even when we look at Thomas' confession, he says, my Lord and my God, letting us know that the title Lord didn't include deity at this point in time, but this is in essence saying, my master, master, I'm with you. I'm under your authority, Lord. They were saying all the right things, and note, they were doing some stuff, right? He says, many will say to me, many, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Jesus does not debate that fact that they've done this kind of stuff. And if you're looking at this and saying, yeah, I told you those charismatic people were all nuts, right? Turn over to Matthew chapter 10. Verse 5, this is Jesus sending out the 12. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim to them as you go, speaking the word of God, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, all those miraculous work, cast out demons, 
So when these people saying, we're doing all this stuff, this is stuff that genuine, authentic followers of Jesus Christ were empowered by him to do. And you know who was among that group of 12? Judas. And you know, I think Judas was doing the exact same works as all the other disciples because you get to the end when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, none of them said, ah, it's Judas. We knew all along. He wasn't doing anything. He's just like on for the show. He's not able to do any works of power. Wrong. Judas was included with those that went out, empowered by Christ to do amazing things. Yet Jesus rejects these folks, rejects these folks that honored them with what they said, Lord, Lord, double emphasis, you're really my Lord, we're doing all this great stuff in your name, aren't we doing it in your name? And how does Jesus respond to them? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says they didn't do the will of the Father. And you look at this and you wonder, what in the world? And if we read this, this I think all these warnings should hit us kind of in the gut and cause us to do a lot of self-examining. And I think that was Jesus' point. He's like, okay, am I one of those that is saying all the right stuff, even involved and engaged in various ministries, even maybe successful ministries? But there's a big part of me that is disconnected from the will of the Father. There's a big part of me that doesn't want what God wants. I want to do ministry, and I want to do it in his way, but I'm not really interested in really my life changing. I'm all about the cause, but I'm not all about personally relating to Jesus Christ. And these were folks that, in essence, were depending on their performance. On that day. Well, what is that day? That day is a reference to the day in the Old Testament. It was called the day of the Lord. It's called that in the New Testament as well. This is the day of reckoning with God, a day where we stand before God and he judges us. And as a believer, what do I say on that day? I say, nothing in my hands I bring. What? Simply to your cross cross I, I cling. That's my stand before God. It's not based on my own righteousness, but what were these folks saying? Look at all the stuff we've done, Jesus. We prophesied, we cast out demons, we performed miracles. So that right there tells me that these folks were counting on their own performance and weren't counting on what Jesus Christ had done on their behalf. And Jesus validates validates that by saying, I never knew you. I never knew you. And to me, this is kind of frightening, especially as a person involved in ministry, that it's possible to be used by God to even have a powerful impact for God, yet still not be in a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. You look at the Old Testament. Remember Balaam? Here's a guy that's a prophet. He's prophesying, right? And he even prophesies about the Messiah to come. Is he tight with God? (laughs) No, because later on he tells the Amorites, or I'm not sure who it was, but he tells them, okay, this is how you're going to get the Israelites to fall. I can't prophesy against what the Lord tells me, but 
you get this worship environment going on, and our women will lure the Israelites into that, and that's how you can get them to fall. So Balaam was not a man that was connected with God, yet still the Lord used him to prophesy. Again, Judas, to me, he's doing all the things that all the other disciples are doing. One of my favorite scenes is from Acts 19, the seven sons of Sceva. You guys know those guys? These are a group of Jewish brothers that were going around doing exorcisms, and they were using the name of Jesus to cast out demons. And obviously it was working for a while, until it wasn't, right? And then one demon says, you know, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who the heck are you guys? And they go running down the street after being beat up naked, all seven of them. I'd love to have been in that scene. It'd be a great movie scene. But the reality is they were using the name of Jesus to accomplish spiritual benefit for those that they were seeking to minister to. Paul in Philippians 1.15 says this. He's in prison and he says, there are some that are out there preaching the gospel of the kingdom and they're preaching it out of rivalry and envy. And what does Paul say? I hope the Lord just takes them. No, he says... I'm glad that the gospel is being presented out there, even though the motives of these people is totally foreign to what God wants for us. I remember a woman that was in the intern program that I was in, and she came to Christ through, to me, one of the most scandalous TV evangelists that I've ever seen. And I'm like, Lord, what in the world? We're seeking to share, and, and you use this, yeah. God is that gracious that he will use the power of the gospel to love people even though the instrument of that presentation may not be altogether right. So these are people that are saying the right thing and are doing even some of the right things, but still their hearts are disconnected from Christ. They're not doing the will of the Father and Jesus, later on in the Gospel of John, says, you know, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, so what is the will of the Father? The will of the Father is what he just outlined in this Sermon on the Mount. And later on, he says, you're not doing what I have taught you. So in essence, they're not following Jesus' teaching. So I think Jesus is saying here, don't be the person that here recites all the Orthodox creeds. You may get all pumped up in worship environments. You may even be engaged in ministry. But still, in your heart of hearts, you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and surrendered to him and understood your need for his grace and understood that, man, it's not any of my works that are providing me entrance into the kingdom. I come with open hands, nothing to bring, acknowledging that I am spiritually bankrupt. And then I relate to God by saying, Lord, use me in this life. Again, it seems to be here sometimes that Jesus is saying obedience is essential to being a follower of his. And we struggle with that when we look at that compared to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. How do we put those two things together? To me, we put them together by the power of the Holy Spirit. That when I come to trust Christ, when I acknowledge my spiritual bankruptcy, when I recognize and I'm poor in spirit and I come to Christ and say, Christ, I need you, then something happens there supernatural, right? I am indwelt if I'm a genuine believer, if that's been a genuine experience by the Holy Spirit who then begins to transform my life. 
And if there's absolutely no transformation in my life, I don't think I'm a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. So my obedience never merits my entrance into the kingdom. But I don't think anybody is going to come into the kingdom that is not obedient to Christ. Because God's spirit begins to work in me. And this is a challenging text, right? What does Jesus tell his apostles at the end of Matthew? Make disciples, right, of all nations. Does he end it there? Teaching them to obey three-quarters of what I said or what they like about what I said or teaching them to obey all or everything that I have commanded. It's not an option. It's not like, oh yeah, you can pick and choose whatever you want. If I am following Christ, then my heart needs to be directed towards obedience. And if it's not, then there's a problem in my life. 2 Timothy 2.19 says this, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. These folks had obviously not departed from iniquity. 1 John 2.4 Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. Those are strong words. And we read this, and I think those of us who are more sensitive souls, right? We look at our lives and we're always critical of our religious performance. This can hit us hard and we're like, oh, I'm, I'm that person. I'm not perfect yet. I don't obey in every way. Does that mean that Christ is requiring perfect obedience? I don't think so. Because the rest of the New Testament is full of believers that are struggling, and Paul, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians are a mess. They are a hot mess, as they say in the South. There's all sorts of stuff going on there. That is, And he doesn't say, you're not believers. He says, wow, you've been blessed in so many ways, now begin to live consistently with that blessing. But I don't think you can be a believer with the attitude of, you know what, I just want that fire insurance. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, That's what it is. I I get what I want from God, and then, you know, I'll see him when I get there, right? And I'll live my life like I want to live my life. And Jesus, he hits those people in the gut, and he says, that's not what it means, really, to trust and follow me. If I believe in Jesus Christ, it's more than just an intellectual belief. It's got to impact how I live life. And that brings us to the next and the final warning in the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So Jesus says, there's, this is the first parable that appears in Matthew. He says, there's there's two builders, right? And he compares them, basically, and it's all about the foundation. And it says, those that build their house on the foundation of the rock, says, when the storms come, when they beat upon that house, that house is going to stand. Some of you know that I and another guy built our house uh, way back in 2002, 2003. And when I was building it, um, 
there's all sorts of hurricane code that you have to do. So next to every window in our house, there's a piece of steel that ties into the foundation footer there, goes all the way up to the top plate. And then there's a big washer and nut you put on there next to every window. And so basically all the walls are tied into the foundation. And then when you put the trusses up there, there's all these clips, special clips, hurricane clips, Simpson clips that you have to put up to attach your trusses to your sidewalls. So basically, if our house blows away, the whole thing is going to have to blow away together. And when I was building it, it's like, man, this is so tedious. Some of these Simpson clips have like 16 different nails in one clip, and I'm going, oh, I don't have the time for this. I've got to get in this house. But, you know, you got an inspector coming, and you know, okay, we got to do this. So I did it, and we completed the house in October of 03. And then there was a little event the following year in the fall called Ivan that came through Pensacola. And I was so glad that next to every one of my windows, there was a piece of steel rod tying my sidewalls down to the foundation. And I was so glad all of my trusses were connected to those sidewalls that were tied into the foundation because we fared very well by the grace of God. But it was only the storm that revealed that. Because as you're building, it's a whole lot easier and it does not look different for a while if you build without any of those things. In fact, there may be more progress that you see when you don't do those things. In Luke's version of this parable, it says that the person that's building on the rock, he dug down deep to the rock. It takes effort, right? You got to get down to that rock. And that's kind of just a thankless, there's not a lot of stuff happening. You look at a house being just like, oh, nothing's happening. They're just digging and digging and digging. And look at the house next door. Man, that thing's almost completed. They're awesome. Until the storm comes, right? And so when the storm comes, it reveals what the house is built on. Now, the book of Ezekiel uses storm language to talk about the final judgment, but I also think, basically, that the storm language can apply to any affliction or difficulty that hits in our lives. Because that's what really reveals what we've built our lives on. When times are good, both houses look great. You can't tell them apart, right? And I love the reality of Scripture. Jesus does not say here, if you hear my words and do it, no storms in your life. Your house is going to be someplace where there's going to be nothing that's going to ever threaten it. No, the storms are coming both for believers and unbelievers alike, for those that hear the words and do them, and for those that hear the words and say, ah, in one ear, out the other, I don't really need to pay any attention to this. But when the storms come, that's when our houses, which is a metaphor for our lives, either stand by the grace of God, or come crashing down. Jesus told a parable about a sower sowing seeds, and one of those seeds, it sprang up really quickly, probably quicker than the other seeds that had deep root, because the ground was shallow and probably warmer, and the moisture kept up, so the roots didn't have to go that deep, but then when troubles or persecution hit, that just withered. And so Jesus' final warning here is, you need to do more than just merely listen to these words of mine. Are you willing to put it into practice?
again, this is just consistent with what he said. He said basically before that you're to be salt and light. And then he says, I'm not saying that I've come to abolish the law. In fact, I've come to fulfill it. And this is the fulfillment of the law as he gives in this sermon. And he says basically, in essence, when you're doing this, you're going to be blessed if you practice what I say and do. That doesn't earn our way into the kingdom, but it demonstrates that we are genuinely a child of God, empowered and indwelt by His Holy Spirit. Just knowing facts about Jesus, it's not enough. James talks about the demons being very orthodox, but what have they not done? They have not surrendered to Christ. They have not bowed the knee to Christ and said, Lord, your will be done in my life. I want to do that as best I can. And I know I'm going to screw up and I know I'm going to fall. But Lord, in my heart of hearts, I want to follow you. That is what I want to do. And to me, that's where I got to get sometimes. I got to peel back because I do stupid things. I got to peel back all those layers and say, Lord, in my heart of hearts, what is really there? Do I really want to follow you? And I think as a genuine child of God, that want is going to be there. And it's going to be, Lord, I want, and sometimes it's a wrestle, and sometimes we're in Romans 7, the very thing that I want to do, I don't do because I still got this stinking flesh, but my heart is still a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and a seeking after God and his kingdom and his righteousness because that's what I want my life to be characterized by. I don't want to just be going through this life saying, yeah, I'm all about Jesus. And it impacts nothing of how I conduct, my business, my finances, my marriage, my sexuality, none of that is impacted because I still want to do my own thing. And again, these are hard, strong words from Jesus. And he doesn't conclude every message that he speaks with hard, strong words. In the upper room discourse in John 16, he says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've conquered the world. The reality is Jesus is speaking to a mixed multitude. There are disciples there, but there's the crowd there as well. And in every crowd there are some that are like, yeah, whatever. And Jesus is saying, it's eternally consequential what you do with my words. They will either lead you to life as you trust me or if you blow them off and ignore them and just say, yeah, I've been to church, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, that's great, but it's not impacting me at all, then great is your destruction and it's eternal destruction. It's a frightening thought. But as I look at this week and what we celebrate this week, we are celebrating the fact that God came to this planet, walked among us, took my sins on that cross, died, and rose again. This is the God of the universe that is speaking to us here. It's not just some moral teacher that's saying, ah, these are some good ways to live your life. No, this is the God that knit me together, that created me, that created you, that knows how we best function. He says, this is how I want you to live as a citizen of my kingdom. And when we recognize who we're talking to, it's not just, Lord, Lord, and we do our own thing. It's, Lord, help me to follow you. I want to be an obedient child of yours. I know that what I do does not merit my entrance into your kingdom, but, Lord, you've got my heart now, and I want that heart to reflect you 
to this world around me. And so these are astonishing warnings at the end here. And it astonishes the crowds. Verse 28, And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. How the scribes would normally teach is they would say something, and when you're writing a research paper, what do you have at the bottom or now at the end? You know, footnotes or endnotes. Well, I'm saying this because Rabbi so-and-so said this a hundred years ago, and before him, this rabbi said this, and this rabbi, and so I'm constantly footnoting what I'm saying to establish my authority. Because this PhD said this, and that PhD said that, and that's why I'm to be listened to. Jesus does none of that. He just shows up. He's from the sticks. And all of a sudden, he's coming in, and he is laying down some claims here, and it's like, okay, Basically, he's saying, your eternity, it's all about a relationship with me. I'm going to be the one that says, ah, depart from me. I never knew you. I'm going to be the one whose teaching you have to listen to, and if you don't, your house is going to come down with a mega crash. That's pretty audacious. And the people realized that. And they heard Jesus say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he doesn't, I say to you because this other group of rabbis said this. No, he just says, I say to you, this is how it is. Period. And he moves on. He doesn't seek to validate or substantiate his claims. And he just says, basically, bold-faced, how you relate to me and my teaching is going to determine your eternal destiny. That's teaching with authority. <laughs> no other rabbis, no other scribes were teaching that kind of stuff. And so to me, the question is, who is Jesus? Is he a worthy authority in my life to listen to? And I've concluded he is. He's the only one that, to me, is a real authority that I need to listen to. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man or woman who built his or her house on the rock. So my question to you this morning is what are you building your house on? Is it maybe achievement? I'm going to make this particular level and that will allow me to live the life that I need to live. Is it my appearance, my looks? That's what I'm building my life on. Is it my sexual expression? That's what's going to give me life. Is it accumulating a lot of resources? That will provide life. There are all those things that we chase after, but Jesus would say all of those things are going to be like sand. And they're all going to become unstable at some point in time. And they may look stable for a while, but when the storms come, the house will fall with a great fall. We don't have to look far in our culture to see so many houses falling with a great fall, both outside the church and inside the church. Because sometimes we think we're smarter than Jesus, right? Well, that's what Jesus said, but there's a few extenuating circumstances in my life, so I can do what I want to do. I'll hear this part of what Jesus says and seek to apply that part, but this other part, not, not into it. Jesus closes and then basically says, I'm a package deal. <laughs> I've got authority and you need to accept that or you blow me off, but there's going to be consequences to that. So you choose. 
And he walks off and he drops the mic and says, the choice is yours. Hear and do. Hear and ignore. Nobody can make that decision for you. But I think Jesus' warning is that it's impossible here to remain neutral about who he is. And to me, in my life, there's a point at which I had to say, okay, Jesus, you are Lord. You are the authority. I can't come into my life and saying, yeah, I love Jesus, but all these areas of my life that I want to live in my way, I can keep doing that. And mm -mm, Jesus doesn't give me that option. And if you're in that mindset, being in church is a really dangerous place to be <laughs> because now you've got more information <laughs> and God holds you responsible for that. So what are you going to do with what Jesus has said? You've got to make that decision in your own heart and your own life. And again, the entry point is for all who are willing to be poor in spirit and recognize their need. But when you come in that way, you're coming to the God of this universe and you're saying, now, Lord, I want you to be my Lord. I want my heart to be connected to you. I want to know your love that surpasses knowledge. I want to understand you and give my life in obedience to you. And that's the response that Jesus deserves. So am I giving it to him? Or am I just mouthing the words, going through the motions, doing a little Christian thing here and there. But my life really is built on something else other than Jesus Christ, who is the rock. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, these are sobering words. They're disturbing words. Yet you don't give warnings without a way out. And that way out is to come to you. You were asked, what must we do to do the work that God requires? And you said, the work that God requires is this, to trust in him who he has sent. So Lord, I pray that each person here would have a trust in you that is real. That we wouldn't be going through religious motions, saying the right religious cliches with a heart that is disconnected from you. That we would be all in with you. Lord, none of us are going to do that perfectly. But Lord, make that the desire and the orientation of our heart. Lord, thank you for making us face this reality. You don't do it because you want to rob us, but you do it because you want to give us life and that life to the full. Lord, there's two ways. There's two trees. There's two approaches to you and one will end in destruction and the other ends in life that goes on forever. Lord, make us wise. And if anyone here is on the fence, I just pray that by your spirit they would come to fully trust and embrace you as their Lord, Master, and Savior. Lord, we thank you for this sermon. There's lots of stuff that is counter to what we naturally want to do. So, Lord, we just come to you and we ask that you would help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And then by your spirit, you would enable us to live these truths out as we walk through this world. And it's in Jesus' 
amazingly powerful and precious name that we pray. Amen.